Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Dr. Raj Podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And for those who don't know, this is not only a podcast about how to pass your board exams. You know why? I have a different podcast for that. It's called Beyond the Pearls. But today's podcast is all about happiness and joy. It's all about wellness. It's all about integrating medicine. And I'm super pumped today because with all those things being said, that we have a guest today who really focuses on all those wonderful things. And he focuses on something called functional medicine, which he's going to talk about, explain to us. And before I introduce, you know, I always have my routine and my routine is uh, getting a bio. So this wonderful doctor has a powerful media team behind him and they gave me a little thing to read. So I'm going to embarrass him all reading all this, okay? So my guest today is going to be Dr. Elroy Vojdani. And I do like saying that. It just has a nice ring to it, you know? But uh, he is a pioneer of functional medicine and founder of Regenera Medical. Uh, Dr. Elroy Vojdani has quickly become the go-to expert for media and C-suite executives alike. Warmly referred to as Dr. V, he is a licensed medical doctor and an Institute for Functional Medicine Certified Practitioner. A well-published physician, Dr. V is known for accurately diagnosing and treating serious life-threatening conditions by getting to the root of his patient's health concerns. He is also credited for his extensive research on causes of Alzheimer's, along with the blood test he developed to determine if young individuals are at risk for Alzheimer's. His expertise has been featured on Home and Family, uh, KTLA Morning Show, Fox uh, 11LA, and Fox 5 San Diego, as well as on Elle Magazine, Yahoo, MSN, Forbes.com, Parade Magazine, Shape Magazine, Reader's Digest, Healthline, Vice, well, plus good and real, simple, and bustle. Now, I got to tell you, we do share a lot in common because I think me and you have the same circuiting or we book the same people, but you sound amazing, and I'm so happy you're here. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Elroy Bojdani, thank you for being here. It's awesome to be here, Dr. Raj. Thanks for having me. No problem. So here's going to be the routine today. Do you mind if we do a little meet and greet and I could ask you about where did you come from and how did you end up where you are? Is that going to be cool? I would love that. All right. So, all right. Here's going to be a, a classic one. Uh, so I just want to know, where did you go to undergrad and what was your major? And during that time, when did you know that you wanted to become a, a doctor? 
so I went to uh, Berkeley for undergrad. Okay. I was a molecular and cell biology major with a subspecialty in neurobiology. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a doctor before I went to college. Um, I, I had a, uh, I played high school varsity football here in Los Angeles, uh, oh. Palisades High. I was the team captain, had a rough orthopedic injury while playing uni oh. high here locally and was uh, carted off to the emergency room during a game and had a uh, really wonderful experience with uh, UCLA orthopedic surgeons. And, uh, you know, I kind of had this moment where I had a window into the real impact that physicians can have on other people's lives. And I came away from that whole experience telling myself I wanted to do that for other people. I love that. So let me parlay that. So UCLA stepped it up and helped you out. But what I love about you is not UCLA. <laughs> Rogen. Let me get that straight. So, so, uh, so you went to the you went to USC Med School. Does everyone hear that? And I guess my question to you is that um, during your first two years or clinicals, what was your what was your favorite rotation or basic science class, and what was your worst? What did you suck at? Everyone sucks at something, you know. What was tough for you? Um, I definitely sucked at uh, pharmacology. It was by far my weakest, you know, like memorizing every single antibiotic and how they worked and the second generation cephalosporins. I was just, it, it was in one ear and out the other one. I, I, anatomy was my strong suit by far. I actually ended up being a, a teacher's aide for uh, gross anatomy at USC with Dr. Snow, legendary Dr. Snow in my fourth year. It was such an amazing experience to get to teach it and become like another level of expertise with anatomy. Um, so yeah, sucked at pharmacology was great at anatomy. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I love your background. And so, you know, after you did med school, you were an interventional radiologist. Now I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm pulmonary critical care and I love IR because you get all those tubes I can't put in, all those things I can't biopsy, I need you folks to do it for me. So what made you choose to go into interventional radiology? You know, the, the road there was was an interesting one. I kind of look back and it, it was it was like I was making, you know, like the best choice for myself at the time. And it just kind of led me there um, in in rotations. My problem was that I loved everything. Like I loved internal medicine. I loved peds. I loved OBGYN. I loved neurology. I loved orthopedic surgery. I loved neurosurgery. It was like every rotation I was into it. Right. And my final rotation uh, was an elective from my third year before we had to pick. And I did a, a RADS rotation and okay. just cause I thought it was going to be easy and fun and whatever. Right. <laughs> so you know, in radiology, you do a little bit of everything. You learn a little bit of everything. Like, you know, you're, you're on peds, you're doing neurorads, you're doing IR, you're doing, you know, ultrasound and you're doing, you know, body. And I think that for me, because I couldn't choose, it was like, well, this is a way for me to do everything. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really thinking about the patient care part of it, which was a part that I really loved in rotations and, you know, made the choice and, and, um, you know, RADS was definitely very fascinating to me during residency, but I was really, really missing the patient contact. So when I was choosing the fellowship, I chose IR, you know, it was hands-on with patients yep. uh, back in, in the clinical care setting. And I really, really enjoyed my fellowship. Um, I did it at Keck and I did residency as Keck, Keck too. Mm -hmm. So I was there for 10 yep. years. <laughs> uh, so I am definitely a Trojan. 
true, true, true deep Trojan. But you know, when when I hit private practice in the community, it very much is care at the end of chronic disease. You know, like we're we're dealing with end stage renal disease. You know, lots of dementia patients, and I came into the world and field of medicine with a, a deep research background before med school and before all of this, because my dad's an immunologist and I've been working with him since I was 15, 16. So, you know, I guess what really happened after a couple of years in private practice was I just, I felt a little bit like I was running on a hamster wheel. You know, it was like, you get um, these situations where two o'clock in the morning, there's someone bleeding out of their gastroduodenal artery from a pancreatic mass and you're, you're stopping the bleeding and you feel like a hero and you're great and you're, saving a life and whatever. And the patient's back on the table two months later and is on their way out. And, right. you know, it's a necessity. It's a wonderful field. You know, I think it, it has a lot to offer the medical space, but it just, it, it didn't itch enough of that. Like I need to solve this problem before it starts part of me personally. No, um, I love that. And I think we're kind of, you're setting me up for my next question, which is good. We're kind of on the same vibe because, you know, let my listeners know, being a radiologist, especially interventional radiologist, not to pump everyone's ego up, they're hard to get. They're not easy residencies or fellowships. I mean, it tells me that you're you're a smart cookie, you know? So to give that up and do uh, functional medicine. So can we kind of, kind of segue this into, hey, can you explain to my listeners, and my listeners are a lot of med students and residents and just smart people in general, and... Uh, what is, you know, what is a functional medicine doctor? Can you explain that? Yeah, for sure. So I think functional medicine tries to, you know, essentially put together the different systems and try to find where they're interconnected and look for optimizing someone's outcome by putting a lot of those dots together in one. You know, it's essentially an integrative approach. So we're thinking about hormonal systems, we're thinking about different organ systems, we're thinking about the neurological system, we're thinking about the immune system, and, and we're looking at how those things are interconnected and, and want to try to find ways to improve them all at the same time. So and, with that being said, and you know, I got my notes here because I really thought this out. I didn't realize that, you know, functional medicine, integrative medicine, these are hot topics right now. I mean, oh my God, they're so popular. So for the people listening, why would someone want to see a, a functional medicine doctor if there is an answer to that? What, what I mean, how would you kind of say this is why you may be interested in going that way? Well, it, it really depends on what the goals are, right? You know, I think okay. if you're looking for somebody who's going to be very preventative, medicine minded, and also is like very um up with the current lifestyle interventions that can be preventative for particular things, a functional integrative medicine practitioner or physician is going to be, you know, the right choice. You know, me specifically, I kind of took that idea and applied it to different areas, right? So I came into this whole thing with a very deep research background and I continued to publish in the world of immunology. And I, I wanted to take that system connected approach and apply it to the world of autoimmune and, and chronic inflammatory diseases. And for me, it was all about like, listen, we've got to detect these situations as early as possible and intervene on them as early as possible and prevent somebody from ending up in that really difficult end of disease place. So that's why it was the right fit for me. It allowed an early window of opportunity. So that's really what it represents. It's 
it's early and, and whole body intervention. No, I love that. So, you know, what conditions, now we're getting really specific, we're narrowing it down. What conditions does a functional medicine doctor kind of treat? Does that, is that a good question? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. I would awesome. think, I think most, most functional medicine physicians mm-hmm. deal a lot with autoimmune or inflammatory conditions. So things okay. like IBS, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, um, we get a lot of thyroid diseases, Hashimoto's and Graves being, you know, obviously two very common ones, um, neurological autoimmune conditions, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, okay. you know, but basically with these diseases that obviously, you know, there are the standard treatments available to them, but the, these are people who are looking for everything that they can do to try to maximize their quality of life. So they want to know specifically, you know, what is the best diet for me with this condition? You know, uh, how do I help support, you know, a healthy immune system for myself going forward? Are there any diet or any supplements that are going to sit particularly well for me? Right. And, and navigating that world on your own in the internet or, you know, uh, non-physicians is tumultuous at best. So, <laughs> we try to be the experts to really take the skills and the ability to look at the literature and, and kind of look at everything outside of the standard world and say, well, what meets our rigorous criteria of this is acceptable for the person in front of us? What do we think, you know, can definitely help this person have a higher quality of life and then integrate that into the treatments that they're getting from their neurologist, rheumatologist, you know, everybody else who's involved in their care. I swear you're looking at my my answers somewhere on questions because this is a great setup. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you know this, my my wife is a rheumatologist and rumor has it she is the smartest rheumatologist in the world. So, <laughs> so anyways, as she knows I'm doing this interview today. So she actually has a question and um, I have a question too. So my question is, is that, you know, my wife is the queen of lupus, autoimmune diseases, and all of these kind of things. And, you know, she believes in her heart that none of her patients really want to be on lifelong medications. And of course, she is someone who has a lot of immunosuppressants and steroids and all these things. And she noticed that, you know, a lot of her patients always ask about diet. So my question to you is, do you work with people like my wife? And if you worked with my wife, would you be nice to her? Uh, always, um, <laughs> you know, actually the biggest group of physicians that I work with, um, in conjunction, you know, to try to formulate the best treatment plan is rheumatologists. Okay. Uh, and I think that makes the most amount of sense, right? I mean, they're seeing the most autoimmune conditions. Those are patients who are looking at long-term immunomodulator therapy, biologics, immunosuppressants, whatever. And, you know, they, they want to know whatever it is that they can do to maximize their outcome. Um, and, you know, we know from, from, you know, uh, clinical studies that functional medicine is looking like a very good fit as a conjunctive piece to traditional care. So there's a lot of interest in this. And a lot of local rheumatologists here in LA actually come to me and will say, Hey, I've got this person with this condition, you know, would you mind taking a look at their case? What do you think we can do? And, uh, those are my favorite, favorite cases to take on. I would, uh, obviously be more than happy to work with your wife. <laughs> no, she, she had a, this actually just happened. So life is always about coincidence. So, you know, she had a patient that also sees a functional medical doctor. And one thing that she wanted me to ask you is, is that a lot of her patients, when they see her, there are labs that you guys order and things that she doesn't commonly order herself. And sometimes she gave the example of 
pH of the urine, you know, and all of a sudden, like, like, uh, her patients will tell her, Hey, did you look at this value or that value? And she's not too familiar with it because she's not trained in it. So is that something you've noticed that when you are working with maybe the room or anyone else is that sometimes you guys are not on the same page about the labs or do you say, Hey, if I order it, just ask me about it. Or, you know what I mean? How do you address those kind of like tough spots? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to put my old IR hat on and I'm, I'm walking around in the ICU and I'm looking at a blood gas and I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm going to come to you, Dr. Raj, and be like, hey, <laughs> I understand this. I have no idea what I'm looking at here. I don't remember that lecture from medical school. <laughs> but yeah, it's the same thing. You know, I think that there are things that that um, someone who has a lot of experience in functional medicine and really understands the intricacies of the laboratory testing will have some expertise in. And then there are obviously things that a room or a palm or a kidney, you know, specialist will, will be better at looking. And, and obviously the situation is going to be best handled with two-way communication and two-way love and respect. Right. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I did some research cause it's always the best part of these podcasts. I could be a stalker. So you're like all over the, well, if I use internet media, you're everywhere, man. There was two things I really loved about you. Um, Number one, where did you get this interest in Alzheimer's disease? What, why that? I think it's so cool. Where did you get that interest? So I told you that one of the things that spurred my desire to try to look for a different place to apply myself in medicine was that everybody who was coming my way on the IR table was suffering from end-stage dementia. And oh. it wasn't always like the 85-year-old, right? You know, it's like the 60-something-year-old, the 70-something. It was just like something is going on. Like this is this is too much. Like every patient would have no recollection of who I was, where they were, what was going on. So I, I think that experience has really stuck with me and was uh, something that I really felt this deep desire inside to try to understand and do something about. Um, so that's really where it came from. I happened to go to uh, annual Institute for Functional Medicine conference um, in, I think it was 2016, it was locally here in Los Angeles, and, and the topic of the annual conference was dementia, and they brought a lot of um, cross-country experts, and one of them is a PhD at Harvard, Rudy Tanzi, really brilliant guy, and, and he, he was really looking into the physiology of amyloid plaque deposition and, huh? and what, are, what are the triggers for the deposition, and I was just we were sitting there. My dad was sitting next to me and, and we, we just kind of like light bulbs went off and, and we came out of that lecture and we're like, we have to throw our hat into this game and see what we can do. Now, I'm impressed. So I want to talk about a couple of these things. Number one, I watched your Good Day LA episode. That was so cool, man. So uh, I want to like treat my fans out to some of the things. So let's talk about it first um, in just a simple way to explain. It. I know you could get really super medical dorky too, but what is this blood test? Now, it's not FDA approved yet from last I checked about this risk assessment for Alzheimer's. Can you kind of like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. be my listeners? For sure. And, and, you know, there's a lot happening in that world since that blood test was released. So let's kind of catch everybody up with this whole thing, right? So I think the future of diagnostics is very clearly going into early detection of either, you know, proteins, amino acids, or free DNA, depending on the disease that you're looking at, right? Like this whole concept of liquid biopsying for different <laughs> disease states, right? Right. So in, in the world of neurodegeneration and dementia, right, th there are defensive 
proteins and amino acids that form in the brain as sequestering mechanisms. Those are amyloid, phosphorylated tau, alpha-synuclein, rabaptin, you know, different, different yeah. things that our, our body will produce initially as defense. And mm-hmm. if that defense goes on for too long, then we suffer the consequence of basically sequestering our own neurological tissue. And, and we suffer from that because we lose function. If you look at that that process, which is 15, 20, maybe 25 years long, you want to try to identify it as early as possible. So essentially, as soon as those sequestering proteins come online, you want to figure that out so you can do something and stop them from continuing to aggregate and cause plaque. So we knew basically that small, tiny fractions of those amino acids will spill into the bloodstream Mm. in people who have them developing in the central nervous system. And this has been demonstrated by other researchers. It also obviously is in the CSF as well, but it does spill into plasma. So it provides an opportunity for trying to diagnose something that otherwise would only be diagnosable with a biopsy or autopsy, right? Yeah. And the brain being as sensitive as it is, you know, we don't want to resort to those mechanisms. So the, the tech to be able to actually detect the minute amounts of protein that spill into the brain from those sequestering events hasn't really come online yet. There are companies that you can detect misfolded amyloid in the blood. And there okay. is actually now a company that does have <clears throat> FDA approval to be able to detect that in the plasma as early detection for Alzheimer's. But okay. this is still a place that's in, in infancy, I think, and will likely continue to grow. So what we essentially studied and tried to, to do was, well, maybe there is a way that we can use an indirect, easy detectable mechanism to look for those spillage events in also a steady state fashion. So problem number one was we can't detect the amino acids in appropriate levels because we didn't have the detector capacity yet. And problem number two is amino acids, when they spill from sequestering events, usually don't do so in steady state. There's usually a little bit of a spill and then a quiet period and then a little bit of a spill and a quiet period. So you're also going to suffer from false negatives in that situation. What the immune system is, is that we have such a robust adaptive immune system is that when the systemic immune system will see a new amino acid that it's it's not programmed to be part of our tolerance, it will create an antibody response to it. So that was our way. Basically, what we did was we said, okay, well, you know, the immune system can detect those minute amounts of the amino acids. It'll recognize it as a new event. And IgG antibodies are very steady over four to six weeks. So we won't suffer from that false negative. So that's essentially what we did. We created a test that would look for the antibodies to the amino acids ah. for early windows into those spillage events from sequestration. That's so awesome. Oh my God. Well, I mean, yeah. I guess, you know, when you think of Alzheimer's, it always just stings, you know, being in the medical ICU, when I see patients who get in there who have this dementia, it just to discover it early to diagnose it early to let families know to let the patient be aware. Oh, my God, this is amazing. So I want to make sure I ask this kind of like question I just loved that it was kind of from the Good Day LA episode. I love that there were things that the general audience, and I do have a lot of just non-medical people listen to this too. Supposedly, Plastic containers, aluminum foil, canned tuna. Now, this one hurt me a little bit. Canned diet soda. I love canned diet soda. Is are the, is that true? Is that are are those things really risk factors for Alzheimer's? Yeah. So so essentially, the second part of the research that we did was we said, okay, like we know that these 
peptides will start to form in the brain as protective events. But then the other question is, what are they protecting us against? Like, what is it in the environment that makes its way into the CNS that all of a sudden triggers phosphorylated tau or amyloid to stick to it, right? And basically, you can map the binding domains of amyloid, phosphorylated tau, alpha-synuclein, and then decide, well, what in the world in the environment do these things stick to? And that's the other part that we did. So we, ah. we basically put those two pieces together. And obviously, the environment is a very big world. So we had to look at several hundred things between all the things that human beings are exposed to. So we looked at foods, we looked at environmental chemicals and toxins, we looked at bacteria, we looked at viruses, and obviously you can't do the whole thing, but we did as much yeah. as we could. And the things that we came back with, essentially the things that we found that amyloid had binding domains for were really surprising. So one of them was aluminum, the other one was EPA, which is the plastic lining of the Diet Coke. I'm sorry, I used to be a Diet Coke fan also. It gets us through the day. Um, uh, several foods. One of them we found was gluten. Uh, another one was casein, which is a dairy peptide. Okay. Uh, we found that herpes simplex virus uh, had a very strong affinity to the binding of amyloid beta as well. So, you know, different various things in the environment. And that was our attempt to try to say, you know, hey, listen, for people who are at high risk, maybe they've got two copies of APOE4, they've got a significant family history of Alzheimer's. These are probably the things that you want to be mindful of, of not exposing your body to because amyloid has a tendency to bind to these things. I think that was so practical. That was the best part of that episode. I think so many mean, like I said, I love canned diet sodas. People eat canned tuna, all the things like, uh, I mean, aluminum foil, who doesn't wrap their food in that? You know, it's craziness. So let me, I'm not, I'm, I know I, we're going to talk about the book. Don't forget, I got my little list here. We're going to talk about the book, but I got to milk you for all your good knowledge right here. So another thing that I want to talk about really briefly, then we'll go to the book, is skin conditions. And two common skin conditions that many people experience are psoriasis and eczema. You know what I mean? So I, you know, saw your interview. I've been stalking you. And I want to ask you the question, how does diet play a role in these skin conditions? And if you could kind of just expand on that, my next question is going to be, can you give my listeners some tips of what foods to eat and not eat? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Great, great topic. And probably one of the bigger group of conditions that comes our way to the clinic because eczema and psoriasis are both so freaking common out there. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the skin, I, I think of the skin as a window into our interface with the outside world on the inside. Okay. So, you know, we're covered with epithelial cells, obviously, and our small intestine is also covered with epithelial cells. The mucosal immune system, which is the immune system that surveys the, you know, mouth, esophagus, sinuses, small intestine, is in pretty direct communication with the immune system that surveys the skin. So oftentimes when there's an abnormal, silent um, immune activation situation happening within the intestinal system that can be seen externally as an inflammatory condition on the skin. So the skin is the window into the gut, basically. So that's how diet can affect the skin, right? Uh, okay. It's really about how can, where is the immune system perceiving abnormality with what that individual is consuming? And this is a very personal thing. There's no like, here's the eczema diet, here's the psoriasis diet, go okay. out and 
okay. I can give you some general themes for I'll, sure. I'll take them. I'll take them. I'll yeah. take these themes. Give me some general themes. So if you try to probe, you know, uh-huh. people's immune system and see where something called the loss of oral tolerance occurs to food, that's basically where the immune system has forgotten the programming from the first three years of life that the foods that we're consuming are good for us. That's what a loss of oral tolerance is. <laughs> oh, so you okay. form antibodies for those foods. Okay? okay. Number one on the list is gluten. Number two on the list is casein, which is dairy protein. Mm-hmm. Number three on the list is corn. Number four on the list is eggs. Number five on the list is soy. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. okay. So you take all of those out and you certainly don't have a very fun diet. <laughs> <laughs> But luckily, that's an order of prevalence. Okay. So by far, I think the triggering um, food for an intestinal immune system activation is going to be gluten consumption. Okay. Don't ask me why. It's a 45-minute discussion. But essentially, (laughs) the current version of that food protein, which is a very, very big protein that gets broken down into multiple sub-pieces, I think is structurally very different than the way it was maybe 30 or 40 years ago. And the immune system learned a different protein and it's now seeing a different one because of the way that protein has changed. And therefore it's prone to forgetting that this is a good thing for us and attacking it. And if it attacks the food that you mm-hmm. consume on a regular basis, you can only imagine immune system activation goes up and then skin uh-huh. gets pissed off. Well said. See, I knew it was worth having these opinions. These are so practical. So I think it's finally the time that you have actually have a new book coming out. And this book, I love the title of it, When Foods Bites Back. I love it. Now, did I say that correctly? It's When Foods Bite Back, right? That's right. Now, my first question to you is, what was, and I know what you're going to say, but I want to hear it. What is the motivation for doing this book? And what was kind of like the purpose behind it? So... There are only so many physicians like me out there in the world, and there are way more people who are suffering from autoimmune disease than there are physicians like me who can kind of contribute, right? Yes. Um, I'm hopeful that that more and more people have some desire to get some integrative, you know, learning in their world. And, and ultimately, you know, we'll see that quality of outcome will be higher as we kind of integrate more of this into the way that we treat everything. But in the meantime, for people who are suffering from autoimmune diseases, which is 45 to 60 million Americans out there, huge number. Okay, huge number. Yeah. Huge number. Um, I wanted to provide a map, you know, like from my research, what have I learned about the specific foods that have the potential to create confusion between the immune system um, attacking food, therefore relating to attacking tissue. So essentially, these are foods for each autoimmune condition that can contribute to the autoimmune condition itself. And if you remove them, you can decrease the activity of the autoimmune process itself for certain individuals. So uh, the book is just a resource. It goes through if you have Hashimoto's, if you have lupus, if you have MS, if you have Crohn's, if you have ulcerative colitis, these are are the foods that you want to put on your watch list and consider removing to see how you do, um, you know, in the long run. Hey, so, I mean, I don't know this information, but is this your first book or do you have a bunch of books before this one? Is this your first shot at writing? This is my first book for the public. So okay. I have a what, textbook that I wrote about this very lengthy subject. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more, more for practitioners who were in the integrative space who want to learn a little bit more, but this is the first one that was meant for everybody to get out there because, you know, yeah. 
being called aside at a dinner party and like asking to explain to everybody, you know, why is this food bad for me? What should this person be eating? And it's just too much. I'm just going to handle a copy <laughs> of the book. <laughs> so now you can go to dinner parties with the book itself. Exactly. Just, um, you know, being a public book, was this a, a harder one to write for you? Was there more challenges because you're speaking to just the general public? What do you, what, what, how do you? Yeah, it, it's really difficult. I mean, you have to, you have to explain the immune system, which is mm -hmm. a very complicated uh, system built within all of us, right? You have yeah. to explain how autoimmune disease occurs. Yeah. You have to explain why food consumption would change autoimmune disease. And that has to be in a relatable way for everybody out there to be able to understand. So it was very challenging to get, and I, I feel good about, you know, the several years that went into creating this book and getting it to where it is now. I'm a perfectionist. So it, 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 it met the criteria finally. I have a good feel for it. If your book sounds like the way you talk and, you know, obviously I don't do the video out there. You have a beautiful smile. You seem like a nice dude. I really think you're cool. I think the book's going to be great. I have a, I have a strong feel for you. I feel it. I, I appreciate it, Dr. Raj. <laughs> Likewise, by the way, it's good to talk to another hey. cool, cool physician out there. So let me, um, hey, everyone's got to know, when is the book out? When is it coming out? When can we go and pick it up? Uh, it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. The book is officially going to be released at the end of October. So you can go and get the, the pre-order now. It's in, it's in final line editing. It'll be, it'll be released really soon. And of course, I know there's going to be people listening to this podcast are going to like, you know, let me know like, hey, how do I find get more information about this doctor? I want to know more about him. Is Do you have a, a website or where do you want people to go learn more about you? Yeah. Website's the best place, regeneramedical.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook under Regenera Medical. And you know what we have? We have show notes. So when, they, when people listen to my podcast or go to the website, I'll ask your team to send me more stuff about you. We'll put your picture everywhere and all the promos you want so they can learn about this and definitely 100% get your book. Now, I don't say this to everyone, but, you know, are you going to be willing to come back on the show maybe on a later date to I could really pick your mind about more like dorky medical stuff? Are you kidding? For a fellow Keck Trojan, I will always be available. I'm always happy to talk anytime. I love it. Well, everyone, I got to tell you, I hope you enjoyed today's segment on the Dr. Raj podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Elroy Fujdani. You are amazing. You are a fellow Trojan. Come back in and see who's going to be next on the Dr. Raj podcast. Thanks again. And I will see you soon. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm -hmm.